Now, uh, we're in a series called Snapshots of the Savior, and uh, I, I love the opportunity to get the, the opportunity to speak with you uh, this morning about this. Um, you know, this is a season of snapshots. I'm, I'm willing to bet that this is a time of the year that, you know, uh, Instagram and some of the social media are going to have more pictures on them than anything. And I would be remiss as a grandpa if I don't show you a snapshot that we did as a family just the other day. We had a chance to get together. And here are, during COVID, I've got two new grandbabies. Uh, you see little Luke there on the left, and uh, then my granddaughter Blake. Uh, Blake is uh, Kyle and Emily's daughter, and Luke is uh, Lauren and Josh's uh, son. And, uh, you know, Luke is about three and a half months old, and uh, little Blake, she's about five and a half months old. And you, this is a season for snapping pictures, is it not? And uh, we want to hold those pictures and make sure they're memories. And so what we're doing is we're looking at snapshots of the Savior from some of the prophets. And today I want to talk to you about a snapshot that we have of Jesus from the book of Amos. And uh, it's, it shows him as the healer of the nations. Now, we decided in this series, uh, Shane and I, the first couple of weeks, we wanted to use not those familiar kinds of prophecies. You know, we hear them at Christmas time, the virgin giving birth to the one who will be called Emmanuel, God is with us. But we thought, you know, let's just use some of the more obscure prophets because we want to show you how uh, the scriptures really speak and the prophets give these snapshots of a savior who was to come. And I'd be willing to bet you've never heard a message at Christmas time from the book of Hosea like you heard Pastor Shane so ably deliver last week. But he pointed out that in that, in that book we see these, this image of, of Jesus who wants to be the great bridegroom. Today we're going to look at uh, some truths from the book of Amos. I thought it would be valuable though to spend some moments here to look at what we mean when we see that the prophets give snapshots of the Savior. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you've printed out notes there or they're showing up here on the screen, Peter said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. This is an interesting passage because it says the prophets were actually the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ was prompting their message. And it says sometimes they would deliver the message and they didn't really fully comprehend it. They wanted to know more. How, who is this speaking of and when? is this one going to come? And how is this salvation going to work? And I want to remind you that it's the Old Testament. My goodness, we see Jesus all over the New Testament. But it's the Old Testament that was the, that was the Bible of the Jews. This was the Bible of Jesus. This was the Bible of the disciples because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And, and it's interesting that Jesus, after his resurrection... You know, he is, uh, he's kept from uh, being recognized by a couple of his followers and he engages them in conversation and he notices they're down and discouraged. He says, what's wrong? And he said, well, we, you know, we'd hoped, we'd hoped that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, but he was crucified and he was buried. And, 
and we don't understand. We've heard he might have been raised, but we don't, we don't understand. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets wrote. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter his glory? Same thing Peter has just said in this passage. And then notice what it says next. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, notice all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Boy, wouldn't that have been a great Bible study to sit in on. As Jesus takes from the Old Testament passages that were snapshots of himself to teach them. Now, I thought it'd be interesting. Let's take a few moments here and let's talk about, uh, as part of this message today and in this point in our series, let's talk about how we discover Jesus in the Old Testament. Because someone has, uh, has calculated that there are about 300 references and prophecy to Jesus in the Old Testament. And some of them are very clear. Some of them, you know, you, you can't miss. We're used to hearing them. We, you, and prophecies like Isaiah 52 and 53 and prophecies in the book of Micah that we typically hear at Christmas time. But there are others that are powerful, but they're a little more obscure. So how do we find Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, there's three major ways. There, there are more than this, but let me just highlight for the sake of time three ways. Number one, you see him in symbolic ritual and rites. And uh, I wish I had time to go into great detail on this, but the, the tabernacle and then the temple were symbolic of Jesus. We, we really have to go no farther than, than the Passover event where the blood of what was required to be an unblemished lamb is put over the doorposts and the people inside the home, if they had the blood on the doorpost, the, the angel of judgment, the angel of death passed over their house. Much later, God will institute the day of atonement, a day when, a, when a, a lamb is sacrificed and its blood is presented and where the priest could come right into the Holy of Holies into his presence. And it's interesting, it wasn't a month of atonement, wasn't even a week of atonement, it was a day of atonement that happened annually. And of course, we don't have to stretch far to understand how those things point to Jesus. So in symbolic ritual and rites. Second, in unfulfilled destinies and longings. Now what do I mean by this? Well, the history of the people of the Old Testament was a history of failure to live up to their calling and their potential, especially with their leaders and their kings and their prophets and their priests. And this deep disappointment led to a hunger in their hearts to see that their destiny and the, the longing for real righteousness would finally prevail. This is what Pastor Shane last week was showing us out of the book of Hosea, a picture of God's people who'd been unfaithful and yet God loved them and he wanted them for himself. In fact, there, there really are three ideas under this thing of unfulfilled destinies and longings. We must take a moment and point out. So you might want to write these down. First is the people had a hunger for a heroic deliverer. You see, God's people in all ages, and Israel has always faced very real enemies that wanted to wipe them out. In fact, today we're focusing on, 
on uh, Amos in just a few moments. In his day, a nation called Assyria was rising to power, and they represented a real threat. And God's people had a hungering to see a leader, a, a person of courage and faith who would become a heroic deliverer for them, like David had been. David, who was just a shepherd boy, when he stands against a giant named Goliath and showed the moxie to take down this giant, and it turned the tide of the campaign against the Philistine people. You see, God's people were, were hungering for that kind of a deliverer. And then if you'll write this down, they were, they were really hungry for truly godly leadership. See, what, what they wanted more than anything was that their leaders, their judges, and their kings would be people who were truly godly. And some of those leaders were courageous, but not godly. Or sometimes they'd be godly for a while, but then they'd slip back and they'd, they'd turn to evil, and they'd change from being a good shepherd, as it speaks of them in the Old Testament, to a bad shepherd. In fact, in the day of Amos, from the book of Amos, Amos chapter 5, verses 15 and 24, you see this kind of a, of a hunger where Amos says, hate evil and love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy. And then in a powerful verse, in verse 24 of chapter 5, he says, and let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending, never-failing stream. This is, a, of course, the verse that Dr. King used in his famous speech, I Have a Dream speech in August of 1963 in the March on Washington for, for real justice to happen. In fact, in the book of Amos, there are five times that he's going to appeal for justice. And, and you might as well take a moment here. What is justice? Well, it's the outworking of three things righteousness, truth, and love. It's the outworking of righteousness because righteousness helps us focus on what's right instead of what's wrong, on what's good instead of what's bad. It's the outworking of truth because if we're gonna have justice, we, we've gotta turn away from what is false. And it's the outworking of love because only love keeps us from doing those things that will dishonor people and fail to treat them as children of God, who bear the image of God, as we've been talking about here in recent weeks. And in the Old Testament especially, the people were hungry to see a, a leader who would have justice, and especially God warns that it needs to be justice for those who seem to be unimportant, to those who are impressed. He mentions uh, oppressed, specifically he mentions the widow, the orphan, the alien living among you, the dispossessed, the disenfranchised person among you, that God cares about everybody. Everybody matters to him. And people had a hunger to have that kind of king. In fact, this is what David had shown. Notice in 2 Samuel 8, 15, it tells us about King David, that he reigned over all Israel, administering justice, notice, and righteousness for all his people. For all his people. And King David becomes the standard, if you will, of a righteous king. For the whole rest of the history of Israel, David is that righteous king. So much so, in fact, that God makes a covenant with David and he says, in fact, David, all legitimate kings 
are going to come from your descendants. They're going to come from your royal family. This is, by the way, why the Christmas story and both Matthew and Luke emphasize for us that Jesus was a descendant of David. He came from the royal line. And then there was a desire for healing in these leaders from something I call soul sickness. For healing of soul sickness. See, this is what was behind the real longing for justice. It was the up and down obedience of some of the kings. It was the on again, off again righteousness that the nation would practice. It was the problem of the human soul, or we could say the human heart. In fact, we've said it many times here, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And, that, and that's because we've all been infected by the worst pandemic that has never abated, and that's the pandemic of sin that's in the world. The spiritual sickness of soul that God needs to heal in us. In fact, this was part of Isaiah the prophet's message. He uses this, this metaphor of sickness of soul. Notice in Isaiah 59, 14 and 15, he, he says this, justice is turned back. Now, Isaiah was a contemporary of Amos. He spoke it right about the same time. And look at how he characterizes the nation. He says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off for truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing. And the Lord saw that there was no justice and he was offended. See, God pays attention to these things and though outwardly Israel at this time, in fact, it's, it's an interesting thing. This is about 760 B.C., seven and a half centuries in front of Jesus. And at that time, you know, Israel, boy, their economy was booming and they lived in a time of relative peace. And yet Chuck Swindoll writes about this time. He says, while their outer lives gleamed with rays of success, their inner lives sank into a pit of moral decay. And rather than seeking opportunities to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly, they embraced their arrogance and their idolatry, their self-righteousness, and their materialism. And I'll tell you what, I, I can't help but see our own culture today in that description from Isaiah chapter 59. Now, what I want to point out to you, these things we've shown, see, these three longings that we've just identified, these become the basis for the whole idea that Israel has of what Messiah will be like. And that Messiah would be like David. And that he would become a descendant of David. And he'd be the real deal who could do these things. That's why Isaiah 9-7 speaks. One of these great prophetic passages says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign, speaking of Messiah now, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Notice, from that time, on and forever. In other words, not an up and down, that there will be a heroic deliverer, a righteous king, 
a healer of souls. And this leads us, by the way, to the third major place we look for Jesus in the Old Testament, and that's in some of the clear prophetic visions of promise. Where the, where the prophets promise a time is coming when, when Messiah will rule and reign and where the world will be healed of its soul sickness and righteousness and justice and truth will be there. And this is why at Christmas some of these clear prophetic statements come in to, to, uh, to focus for us. But there are many, as we've been pointing out in this, in this series, there are many places in the Old Testament that, that some of those statements are a little more cryptic. And it's easy for us to pass them. I'm going to show you one before we're done here in a few minutes from, from the book of Amos. Notice, for example, in Jeremiah 33, 15 and 16, here's a, here's a, a you know, kind of a vague picture of what Messiah will be like. In those days... And at that time, in fact, if you have your pencil, circle both of those phrases, in those days, and then circle at that time. Those are two phrases you will find over and over and over again in the prophets. And it, it almost marks off, hey, pay attention to this, because I'm about to tell you a vision of what's going to happen in the future because of Messiah. And he says this, in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line and he will do what is just and right in the land and in those days notice that phrase again in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety and this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness now, it's interesting. He says here, there's going to come a time when there's just going to be a little branch that's going to sprout up out of David's line. And, and you know, I, I never read this anymore without realizing something happened right here on our campus. Back in, when we bought this property, it was uh, uh, where our church is sitting today. It was fig orchards. And uh, in 1997, before we actually got moved onto the property, all the, the, the figs, uh, trees were pulled from the property but interestingly, sometime around 2015, one day, uh, Gary, uh, our maintenance guy, Gary Bowser, happened to say to me, hey, uh, I noticed that we've got kind of a fig sprig that has popped up out of the ground. And sure enough, in fact, you can see there's a tree that's grown there today. It's right in front of where our student ministries building is. Next time you're here, you ought to check it out. And it was interesting because all that time, the roots lay dormant in the ground, but all of a sudden conditions were just right and a, and a sprig popped out. Now that's what God is saying is that out of David's line, one is going to come and he's going to suddenly be a branch out of dry dead ground. And of course we see in this the Lord Jesus himself, born in a little town called Bethlehem raced up in a wide spot in the road called Nazareth who came to be the savior of the world. Well, we've looked at how we find Jesus in the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples of that. And uh, let me just tell you uh, about the book of Amos. Now, I'd be willing to bet this isn't a book you spend a whole lot of time in because honestly, we just don't, we don't identify with it because it's, it's filled with messages about judgment and uh, I like to joke that it's a good idea to be reading your Bible because someday if you belong to Christ, you're going 
you're going to be standing somewhere next to Amos, and you're going to introduce yourself and say, Amos, what'd you do? And he's going to say, well, I, I wrote one of the books in the Bible. And uh, it's like, ooh, no kidding, you know? And uh, so you want to get familiar with his message. In fact, uh, I could show you just here's a real simple uh, way to understand the book of Amos if you want to see this outline that's coming up on your screen. In the first two chapters, he delivers eight burdens that he has for the judgment that God is going to bring to the nations around him and particularly his own nation, which at that time, by the way, was divided between north and south, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And it's interesting, the, the word Amos uh, in Hebrew means a burden or burdensome. And so he has eight burdens, he declares, in the first two chapters. And then he gives three sermons to Israel, the north, in chapters three to six. And then he gives five visions of judgment in chapters seven to nine. And then finally, at the end, he gives a promise of salvation and of blessing that's going to come in the last portion of chapter 9. Now, in, in Amos, we see snapshots of a Savior. And I mean, they're just snapshots. They're so simple and that you can blow right past them and not even realize they're there, but I want to point them to you today. But this man... This man Amos is a man who spoke in his day and because his message was so powerful and so strong, there were people who rejected his message and didn't want to hear it. In fact, he was from the south. He doesn't tell us until chapter 7 uh, much about himself. He was, a, he was a shepherd. In fact, he lived in an area that was about five miles south. It was in the same shepherd area that David would have, would have kept sheep. And he was a, a dresser of figs. He, uh, he raised tree fruit, raised figs. And um, he goes from the south to the north to preach. Now imagine that. That would be like a Yankee going to the uh, capital of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia during the time when our, when our country was so divided between north and south over slavery. And he, and he preached to them. And they, and they said, man, that's hate speech. And we can't take that. You need to get out of here and go home because what he was saying is judgment's going to come. He gives eight burdens, he delivers three sermons, and then he gives five visions of judgment before finally he speaks of a promise of salvation. Now there's some important things he says, and we don't have time to really read through the book, so I just want to pull out some of the main truths that he gives, and I think you'll see how they fit who Jesus is and fit this season that we're in. First of all, he points out that wrongs cannot go unpunished forever. And this is the whole idea of judgment. In fact, eight times in the first two chapters alone, God says, I will not relent from punishing the nations for their sin, for their cruelty, for their violence, for their evil, for their wrong. And unfortunately, that included his own people at the time. In fact, in Amos chapter 4, verse 12, God says this, Since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. You know, I have friends who've had Billy Graham uh, when he was living. They had him sign their Bible when they met them, and this was his favorite verse to sign from the second part of this verse. Prepare to meet your God. And of course, what he's talking about here is this thing, of judgment. Now we don't like judgment much, but it is a reality because we have a righteous God. You see, judgment, wrath, 
is the inevitable reaction of a truly righteous God toward all that's wrong. And God says wrongs cannot go unpunished forever. There's going to come a time that we'll reap what we sow. There's going to come a time when the chickens come home to roost. There's going to come a time when we got to pay the piper. The bill comes due. We're going to settle accounts. However you want to talk about it, there's going to come that time. Wrongs cannot go unpunished forever. And the second truth is that God won't overlook any evil, nor let the guilty slide. And Amos is very clear about that. In fact, in chapter 8, he says, I will no longer spare them. And in, in uh, verse 7 of chapter 8, he says, I will never forget all their deeds. Now, God says there is a day of reckoning that's coming. And he says, I'm not going to overlook any evil. I will not let the guilty slide. I will never forget all their deeds, God says in the book of Amos. See, God has, if I could put it this way, guys, he's got a better memory than your wife. Uh, Parents, he's got a better memory than your kids. Nothing gets by him. In fact, there's a great verse in Exodus 34 where God shows us something of his heart. It's at the time when he gives the Ten Commandments, and he says this, the Lord, now notice how God reveals himself. What he says about himself, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. You ought to underline some of these words and then spend time this week thinking about them. He's compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger. In other words, he lets us get by with stuff for a long time. And he's abounding in faithful love and truth Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. In other words, he's not a king who stops being these things. He's a king who is always these things. Forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. But then notice this. Here's a but. And this is a big but. (laughs) But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, as much as we're uncomfortable with the idea of judgment, by the way, there is some comfort to us in that because I know I'm speaking to some people today who have been wronged, who have been oppressed, who have maybe been stolen from or abused or wounded or hurt, and maybe the person who did that, they skated. And you think, you know what, somehow, you know, they're, they're never going to pay. But God says, I'm never going to leave the guilty unpunished. Know that about my judgment. In fact, in Amos chapter 5, there were some people in Amos's day who looked forward that, hey, I'm glad God's finally going to take vengeance on people. But look at what God says. He says, why do you long for the day of the Lord? That means the day of, of judgment. That day will, not, will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion. I love this word picture he uses here. He flees from a lion only to meet a bear. It'll be as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. You know what God's saying is? That his judgment is going to be thorough and there'll be no escape. In fact, in Amos chapter 9, God clearly says, there are none who will get away. 
None will escape judgment. By the way, I just want to ask you the question. How do you think you're going to get off? How do you think you can escape? Well, in Acts chapter 9, I mean, I'm sorry, Amos chapter 9, verse 4, God actually says these words, I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. In fact, God, so what God's saying here is, is I'm not going to overlook any evil. I'm not going to let the guilty slide. In fact, I'm going to keep my eye on them for harm, not for good. Now, that's not the way you want God keeping his eye on you, my friend. In fact, it's not the way he prefers, prefers to have his eye on you. Because he set his heart on you for himself. And here's the third great truth that you can see it in the book of Amos. And you can blow past it without catching because you get so caught up in what God says about the fact he will not clear the guilty and he's bringing judgment. But God loves to destroy sinners by turning them to him. Because God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He loves to exercise these things in the lives of people. And his favorite way to destroy a sinful person is by turning them from their sin to himself. Someone wisely said, the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. And that's exactly what God set out to do for us. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 33, notice what God says about judgment and about his heart. He says, as I live... I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked might turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. And see, one of the things that God does in allowing the consequences of our sin, it's a form of judgment that comes to us, is that God is trying to use pain to get our attention to turn us back to him He's saying, turn back to me. Come home to me, if you will. St. Augustine said it so well when he said, you've made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And you see, the restless hungering of our hearts can only be found in him as we turn to him. By the way, is it possible that right now God is using some of the things happening around us as a judgment? I've had people ask me that question, and unresoundingly, absolutely, I think so. I don't know how you explain a pandemic that's touched every part of the world. That's just not a medical accident. It's affected every person on this planet, and the practice of all things, my goodness, it took an economy here in the United States that was booming, brought it to a grinding halt. Let me ask you, has that gotten your attention? Has that caused you to rethink your priorities and ask yourself what's really important in life? And what am I putting my hopes in? You see, God says that the things that are going on, I, and my goodness, I just look at you know the fires that we're having and say, if you think God might be trying to call us back to himself to, to trust him, have those things caused you to turn your heart toward heaven and admit your need for him? If so, the Bible says, Use hardship as discipline for us to learn. And if so, then God is calling you back to himself. In fact, in the book of Amos, God says to his people, for the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Pursue good and not evil so that you may live and that the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you. See, the message 
of the Bible to the whole world is that God is saying, turn to me, I am your only savior. And God imparts to human hearts in the story of Christmas, the blessings of his heaven. God loves to destroy sinners by turning them to him. And then number four, here's something, and, and Amos says this just right at the last, the last 10 verses or so of his book in chapter 9. God's Savior will make things right forever. And you say, Amos talks about the Savior? How in the world, Steve, do you see that snapshot there? And I will tell you, it's because of what Jesus said. That all the prophets speak of the suffering of Messiah and the glory of that will follow. Now what I want to do is close. We just have a few moments left. I want to close by pointing you at this passage. It's on your notes from Amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12. And here's where we see this snapshot of a Savior. And let me just show you what an incredible snapshot it is. In that day, you notice that language? That's speaking about a messianic future. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And I haven't taken time to read it, but if you go on and read the remaining verses of that ninth chapter, God describes an incredible time of fruitfulness, supernatural fruitfulness and blessing that will come. But I want to I want to focus with you just on this verse and the moments that we have left here. Look at what it says. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Now, the moment you talk about the fallen booth of David, circle the word booth. The word literally means a tent of David. Sometimes it was actually used to describe a tabernacle of God. And so the booth of David, immediately the people in Amos' day would have thought of the house of David and messianic hope. And notice he describes the fallen booth of David. Now at, at moments glance, this looks like he's just talking about restoring Jerusalem to its former glory. But I want you to notice that this is a booth of David. And remember, Messiah is coming from David, and I want you to notice he describes it as a fallen booth. And the word fallen literally means the torn down booth of David. Now, where am I going with this? Well, it's interesting. The Christmas is the time when we remember the coming into the world of Jesus. And John chapter 1, where it describes his coming into the world, says for the word, in other words, the eternal son, if you go back and read John became a human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. For the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now you ought to circle that little phrase, made his dwelling. That's in the Greek that the New Testament was originally written in. That's the word tabernacled among us. He came and tented among us. And so if you will, Jesus is the most important tabernacle or tent ever connected to David because he is the descendant of David who comes into the world and he comes into the world to be its savior. 
judgment. The scripture says we saw him and he was full of the glory of God, full of grace and truth. And in fact, Jesus even used this metaphor for himself. He said, this, my body, it's the temple of God. Tear this temple down and in three days, I will raise it up again. Well, could it be that Jesus, when he spoke to his two disciples from all the prophets, was actually looking at this very verse. I will raise up the torn down tent of David, and when I do, I'll heal not only Israel, but I will heal the nations. In fact, there's two other verses in the book of Amos that kind of point to this reality. In chapter two, notice it's on your notes here, Amos 2.6 says, they sell a righteous person for silver. This is part of how he speaks of the injustice of his day. Now, who does that remind you of? If not Jesus, the perfectly righteous one who became the victim of the betrayal of a reprobate by the name of Judas Iscariot, who loved 30 pieces of silver more than he loved the Lord. And in that day, now notice this, this is from the eighth chapter, goes on to say, in that day, there's this language again about Messiah. In that day, this is the declaration of the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the land in the daytime. Do you remember when that literally happened? When Jesus was nailed to a cross, and for six hours he hung, and it says that from noon until three o'clock, darkness came over the whole land because God was trying to show that in the death of Jesus, something cosmic was going to happen. And Amos says that in that day, when the fallen booth of David is torn down, I'm going to make it dark over the whole land. What was going on here? And finally, we know that Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting. Psalm 22 is what he's quoting right there. You can, go, you can check that out on your own. We don't have time to get into it. It's an amazing description in the Old Testament of the crucifixion that we see Jesus suffered. And you know what's going on there? God's son, as he took the sin of the world on himself, it had cosmic impact. And Jesus was saying, you know, God, why? Why have you turned away from me? And it's as if God, the father from heaven, was saying, well, well son, do you remember that guy, Steve Williams? You can just put your own name in there. I've had my eye on him. And I want to turn him. And, and son... You've just taken Steve's sin upon yourself. And son, I won't clear the guilty. Not even you. And the Bible says God didn't even spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. And that day becomes a day of atonement where Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we're healed. You see, there's something about the love of Christ who was born into the world that we celebrate at this Christmas season. 
And he was born into the world to become our healer by saving us. Now let me just ask you, if God wouldn't even spare his own son because he won't let the guilty slide when he became guilty for us, how is he going to spare you? There's only one way. And it's when you come to believe that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is my righteousness, that my king died in my place. And this is what Amos is saying, that when he raises up the fallen booth of David, the torn down booth of David, then he's going to heal even the nations. And even the nations are going to be called by his name. You know, Psalm 22 that psalm that describes the crucifixion so powerfully, it ends by saying this, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules the nations. You know, there's nothing like the Christmas season in this entire world, my friend, that turns people to look back at one who was born to be our savior. And there's nothing like understanding the death of Jesus for us that changes our hearts and makes us wanna make him our king. He rules the world with truth and grace and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. What I wanna say to you is that Bethlehem's babe is actually the true king of hearts. He is the king who can heal us and who can bring us back to God and who can save us. Oh, come, let us adore him. You know, I want to end with another snapshot shot the other day of my little grandson, Josh, just three and a half months old. He's beginning to get personality. You know the thing I've noticed? He's begun to reach out and grab things. And the other day I just stuck my hand out and he just took those little fingers and just kind of grabbed onto my fingers with this strong hold that he was having. And it immediately reminded me of what someone had written years ago. That Christmas is love reaching to us with the powerful grasp of a tiny hand from a manger. The hand of one who is the king of hearts. And he came to be our savior. Is he your savior? Have you bowed to him? Have you asked him to heal your heart? And to become your master and your king? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, at this Christmas season, I worship you for who you are. Thank you that you are the eternal son who came among us. And you came on a rescue mission to save the world. To become the, the one who could atone for all the sins of the whole world. And we love you today. And what grabs us the most is your great love for us. And so we open our hearts to you. That's why you're reaching to us in love. That we'll love you back. And we choose to do that today. In your holy and saving name, amen.